Hey, y'all. This is a special Super Tuesday preview edition of the NPR Politics Podcast. We're going to talk about everything to expect this Tuesday night when 12 states hold primaries. It's going to be a long, crazy night, the biggest night yet of the 2016 campaign. And we hope you'll listen to a special live edition of this podcast that night on elections.npr.org. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech in the campaign. All right. Uh, before we get into it, we haven't done this before on the show, but let's say hi to our newer listeners. Hi, new listeners. Hey, new listeners. Hey, new listeners. Thanks for being here. All right. We appreciate uh, you. We really do. <laughs> Long-time listeners, just bear with us for a second. If you are new to this show, thank you for downloading. Here's how the show works. Basically, every week you will hear four members of the NPR Politics team here with a roundup of the week's political news. That's at the end of the week, usually Fridays. But we will also do episodes on big news as it happens. And also some conversations we have just because. So if you're new to the show, you can scroll back in the feed and hear some really cool stuff. Last year, we had an episode that was kind of a behind-the-scenes look at NPR's interview with President Obama at the White House. We had one that was an interview with the Supreme Court Justice about how the court works. We had an episode on the politics of Star Wars. I was not in that one. Scott was. That was a critically acclaimed podcast episode. (laughs) Oh, snaps for that. Anyway, there's lots of good stuff back there. If you want, it is all there for you. All right? All right. All right. Super Tuesday. I got to preface this and first acknowledge that, like, Domenico is, gonna be, is, is the star of this episode in this show. He is our oh. delegate guy. He's a maestro. And I'm so happy you're here because every time that I start to <laughs> dig into this stuff, I get more confused. Good, good. But well, you we'll are here to elaborate it. and yep. make it clear. Mm-hmm. First so. and biggest question, why is it called Super Tuesday and what is it exactly? Because it's really big. It's the biggest day of the entire presidential primary campaign. The most states are in play and the most delegates at stake. Okay. And so like, how many delegates yeah. are we talking about? Well, we're talking on both sides about 1,500, 1,460 if you factor out those superdelegates who aren't pledged that night, right? So uh, it's about 20% of all the delegates. So oh, wow. it doesn't seem like a huge number, but it's an important thing because I think of it as like the snowball effect. You know, like if Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada were like a kid's snowball, you know, maybe starting to peak at the top of the mountain, this is the steepest part of the slope. Okay. And the snowball is is now huge and flowing downhill. Maybe huge is the right number. Huge. Right right word to say now. Huge. (laughs) It's kind of crazy the way the calendar works because we spend so much time in New Hampshire and so much time in Iowa and we focus like lasers on these two states. But really, both of those states are just kind of like blips on the delegate radar in terms of what's happening Super Tuesday. Oh, on the delegate radar for sure. I mean, by the end of March, it's going to be 48% of all the delegates on the Democratic side. Almost two thirds of all the delegates will have been decided on the Republican side by the end of March. So there's a lot coming up. And I noticed that as I was trying to schedule everyone out. It was really hard. Then doesn't it seem a little (laughs) unfair that Iowa and New Hampshire got months and months and months and months and months of attention, but all these states that are at play Super Tuesday get considerably less? You're not the first to whine. I mean, mean, uh, mean, uh, bring up a perfectly uh, acceptable socially you know, just social justice oriented uh... social justice oriented <laughs> what? look this is All the problem this is the problem <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good okay. well, I mean I, 
Okay, go ahead. I, I hear you. I you mean, hear me. it's complicated enough, right? And uh, we've done a couple stories about how the process could be different. Uh, Danielle Kurtzleben, who works with us, has done like, you know, six alternatives, and all of those things have potential problems too. So there's nothing really perfect. Uh, it's really long, it's really complicated. <laughs> you know, that's why we're digging into it. So, so what's really at stake for both parties, would you say, on Super Tuesday? Yeah, so the numbers aside, I mean, this is about who can win, right? And, mm-hmm. and what they're looking at here is pretty amazing. Donald Trump on the Republican side has scored major victories in New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. No Republican has ever won those three states and lost the nomination. Like it, it's mm-hmm. it's a pretty unfathomable thing. But we're not sitting here saying Donald Trump is going to be the nominee just yet because there are all of these delegates still at stake. And Super Tuesday is a day for him to show how broad his support is. We saw in Nevada that he had pretty broad support. Can he extend that? Watch Texas because that is the biggest trove of delegates that day. There are 155 delegates at stake for the Republicans that day. That's of 865 total. So you're talking and Ted Cruz's home state, Ted Cruz's mm-hmm. home state. And that's why we bring it up, because if Donald Trump were to beat Ted Cruz there, puts him on his back. All right. So, so the conversation in the last couple of weeks has been, can anybody catch Donald Trump? If so, how and when? If Donald Trump runs the table Tuesday night, is that it? It's not quite it, but it's almost getting there uh, because he's going to be getting toward almost half of what you need. So it's not quite over. Marco Rubio is hoping that he can stick around, maybe win some more or get some more win, (laughs) win some more of those second place finishes. (laughs) Winning second place. And keep enough of those delegates. Hope Ted Cruz takes from Donald Trump. And then after March 15th, there are a lot more moderate states The problem for Marco Rubio is John Kasich is still sticking around. And in two of the big states where there's a lot of Republican delegates, Ohio and Michigan, remember, John Kasich is the governor of Ohio, very popular there. Uh, He could hurt Marco Rubio. So this theory that he has might prove very difficult, but it's still a path. And I guess my question is, what makes us think that after March 15th, Marco Rubio will suddenly start being the winner in a number of these states when it's really been Donald Trump in these last three states who's been the ultimate winner and by pretty big margins? Yeah, pretty big margins. I mean, I think a lot of the Republican uh, establishment has been wringing their hands over this for some time. And I think that as Marco Rubio thinks that if the field winnows, he can get a lot of the money. We're seeing a lot of the donors who were with Jeb Bush and were with other candidates now move to Marco Rubio and trying to prop him up in a way that we hadn't seen before South Carolina, before New Hampshire, where they were letting things play out. So how strongly does he finish in a lot of these Super Tuesday states? We'll see how much more those donors and establishment coalesce around Rubio or not, and then wind up handing the nomination to Trump. Yeah, yeah. Catch us up now on what's at stake for the Democrats. What's at stake for Democrats really is this race between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. What can Bernie Sanders do to stop what looks like Hillary Clinton starting to create some momentum here. The reason we talk about that is because of how the states and where the states are, how they've changed. Hillary Clinton in Nevada gave us a little bit of a clue of where she is with black voters. She won 76% of black voters. They were 13% of the electorate, 13% of the electorate. What we saw in Nevada was a sign of things to come in South Carolina, where more than half of the electorate was African-American and Hillary Clinton won big with them. That's what factored into her big win over Bernie Sanders. Now, kicking that forward to Super Tuesday, a lot of those states are in places in the South that 
are majority or significant populations of African-Americans. And the Clinton campaign has been very adamant about spinning any win as a win. Iowa was razor tight, razor thin, and she still said, we won, we won, we won. Basically a virtual tie. Yeah. But what's important here to note, okay, what is a huge change for Hillary Clinton compared to 2008 is her delegate operation. Explain. They, They adopted the entire Barack Obama delegate field operation. Robbie Mook, who runs her campaign. uh, Was he Obama? He was not, but he ran Mm -hmm. the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is in charge of house races. And the reason that's important is because somebody with that level of kind of, you know, minutia level. uh, He knows the stuff. He knows where the delegates can go. Nevada, for example, all of the congressional districts were even numbered delegates or even numbered delegate precincts. So let's say, you know, there's four delegates somewhere. If it's 55-45, you know how many we get? Two each if there's four delegates at stake, right? If it's an odd number delegate district, let's say it's five and I win 51-49, you get two, I get three. So you focus on places like that in those odd number districts. That is what this Clinton campaign is much better at because in 2008, she won the Nevada caucuses overall, but she lost the delegates to Obama because huh. the Obama team knew where, where to, to get, where to find those delegates. They, he won those delegates 14 to 11, even though she won more precincts. And then it was really that series of, of caucuses in smaller states in between those first round and Super Tuesday where Obama kind of built up that lead that he never gave up. Because I was taking a look back at Super Tuesday, which was even larger in 2008. That was yeah. like enormous Tuesday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Super duper. It was something like 20 delegates separated them at the end of that day. Yeah. It was really kind of like a split in terms of delegates. It was definitely a split. And that was a problem for her. She mm-hmm. thought she would have it wrapped up because every Super Tuesday before that year, the, the person who won Super Tuesday won the nomination. Mm-hmm. They did not have a post-Super Tuesday plan. The Obama people, it was amazing. They sent an off-the-record spreadsheet back then before Super Tuesday with every single state and how many delegates they were anticipating that they were going to win out of each of those states, even ones in June. So... The fact that they were able to do that and Hillary Clinton learned from that mistake, they brought that delegate field operation. All right. Let's do an hour by hour breakdown of the night. What to listen for. All right. Let's go there. Start drinking. Any drinking games for Super Tuesday? I think I'm going to start drinking now. (laughs) (laughs) What's a good Super Tuesday drinking game, though? Just seriously, sidebar. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what word will you hear a lot that night? Delegates. Every time you hear delegates, drink. No? Uh, Too much? Yeah. Establishment. Establishment. We'd all be carted out of here if we drank <laughs> on establishment. All right. <laughs> anyway, anyway, 7 p.m. I think the establishment need to be carted out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, too. All right. Just to clarify, all of the times that we referenced tonight are Eastern time zone. Eastern yeah, we got to keep it straight. Time. This is a big country. So, 7 p.m. Eastern, polls close in Georgia, Vermont, and Virginia. What's the big story there? Well, the most delegates at stake on the Democratic side in those three places is Georgia with 102. You're looking at a state that has had a huge demographic shift. You've seen a much higher minority population. In fact, Barack Obama in 2008 lost the state only by five points in the general election. Okay, that's how much the demographics have shifted there. African-Americans are going to be a huge part of that population. Vermont. Well, I think we all know who's from Vermont. Bernie Sanders is favored to win there, of Mm -hmm. course. They've only got 16 delegates on the Democratic side, but Bernie Sanders will be able to say he got one. 
there in the first hour, most likely. And Virginia, 95 delegates, an important swing state in a general election. That's going to be an interesting race. Hillary Clinton's hoping to show some strength in the South. Started off strong uh, with Georgia and Virginia. And as far as those states for the GOP? On the Republican side, Georgia has, the again, the biggest slate of delegates on the Republican side. You have 76 at stake for Republicans. Um, that is a very different population than what you're going to see on the Democratic side, which is going to be true throughout the night in the South. Much whiter, much more socially conservative. And Donald Trump so far has held pretty big leads there as well as in Virginia. And a lot of the credit has to go to him with the increased turnout this year, record turnout. It's like Obama turnout. Well, I mean, it's record turnout for the GOP, for the Republican side ever in each of the first four states. I mean, and that's something that I was going to say I'm very interested to see in both Georgia and Virginia our turnout on the the Republican primary for for both of those states. Domingo, you hinted at this. Georgia is increasingly seen as a competitive general election state. Virginia, you know, as we know, very important battleground swing state in the general election. So I think that how we see Republican turnout at this stage could be, I mean, could be indicative of how energized the Republican base is for a general election. Though, ironically... Both sides are playing to very different electorates. Totally. And then when they get together in a general election, you know, the questions are on both sides, right? How can Democrats appeal to white voters when they've been going after black voters in Georgia for as long as they have? And how do Republicans appeal to more minorities given how socially conservative their conversation has to be? Well, then what are the salient issues that would appeal to white voters and black and brown voters? Like like what is the general election issue that everyone is... I mean, in past years, jobs, it's been right? the economy, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody. I mean, <laughs> what? I'm sorry. I didn't we all want jobs, right? I mean, yeah. the economy. That's what I was going to say. The economy has time and again been the issue. Yeah. I would just say in this GOP primary thus far, though, we've heard a lot more uh, issues around race and culture and national security than we traditionally have. Um, I mean, if you look at the GOP in years past, I think I've done some reporting on this. It's been able to pull huge support from the Asian community, a pretty you know small community, but a community that has tended to care a lot about the economy and, and jobs and whatnot. Um, The other thing that I was going to pivot back to for a sec that I'm kind of interested in is in Vermont on the GOP side. So, you know, Vermont is a state that is um, above average in terms of the percent of the population that's college educated. And we're going to see some other states as the night goes on that are sort of similar to this. But we keep hearing so much about Donald Trump pulling his support from white non-college educated voters. Uh, In Nevada, we got a glimpse of that potentially not being true. He pulled all income brackets, right? Exactly. And I think how we see, say, a John Kasich or Marco Rubio fare in a state like Vermont could be very interesting. These are New England, moderate-style Republican states. Yeah. All right, we're going to go to 8 p.m. So 8 p.m., the polls close in Alabama, Massachusetts, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. Polls will begin to close in Texas around 8 p.m. That's my home state. Shout out to Texas. So what's up with these states, these 8 p.m. states? So this is another group of states where Bernie Sanders is going to be able to claim some momentum earlier on the night. Massachusetts, it's a state right near his home turf of Vermont that worked pretty well in New Hampshire. And uh, Oklahoma, interestingly enough, is a state where the Sanders campaign feels like it has a lot of momentum. They've been focusing there. So uh, early on, you've got Vermont, uh, Massachusetts and Oklahoma in these first two waves of state closures where the Sanders campaign might be able to pick up uh, wins that are called early in the night. And, And I mean, I have to reiterate that both with Massachusetts and 
uh, Vermont. I mean, these are states that overlapped with New Hampshire's media market. So these are states that have been paying attention to Bernie Sanders for a while, you know, since the New Hampshire primary. So not only that, but they're sort of culturally similar. These are states where Bernie Sanders is, especially in Vermont, a very recognizable name. So I think we would expect for him to do well here. I think if he does not perform well in both Vermont and Massachusetts, that could be indicative more of of the troubles in his campaign. And then we have to understand polling in a lot of these Super Tuesday states is atrocious. Okay. Yeah. So be prepared for a lot of surprises that there are not going to be things going the way we think they're supposed to go. And if you see Oklahoma, Hillary Clinton wind up pulling something off or you see Bernie Sanders leading in a place like Alabama or Tennessee, then you kind of have an idea of maybe the shape of what's happening the rest of the night that could tell us about either Sanders or Clinton's momentum. On the Republican side, I think an interesting state here is Massachusetts. Um, Again, going back to this idea of who is supporting Donald Trump, does he just have one chunk of the Republican electorate? Or as we started to see in Nevada, is it a broader, you know, across education levels, across backgrounds? Because if you were to win in Massachusetts, that would mean that he's appealing to some of the people who you would most think he would not appeal to when you come to Northeastern Republicans who are supposed to be slightly more liberal or moderate and higher, likely higher educated, um, with post-grads Donald Trump hadn't done as well in earlier states. Does that continue? Exactly. And you look at the the types of Republicans that Massachusetts elects. They are definitely not the, uh, they, they are that establishment lane type candidates that we thought about with Mitt John Romney. Kasich. Mitt Romney, <laughs> you know, William Weld, Scott Brown. These are not Donald Trump Republicans. But that Donald Trump Scott is a Scott Brown, Brown Republican. The endorsement. That's right. I mean, yeah. that's where I think we've sort of seen the shift happen this election cycle, though. Right. You've I mean, it, which is of, really fascinating. You had a lot, lot of ways. people. It's amazing. A lot of people very early on who said that there's no way they could support Donald Trump. It would be a terrible idea. Some of those same people now coming around to the idea, throwing their hands up and saying, well, you know, get your head around it. It's mm-hmm. an interesting state, and a lot of candidates have spent a decent amount of time there, especially for a, for a not first round state. And it's a state again, which I think will be very important for us to see how Marco Rubio performs in. I mean, this is a state where, by all accounts, Marco Rubio ought to perform very well. He's got to win somewhere. Totally. And so, if he doesn't, I mean, does he? <laughs> but does he? Does though? he? Does he? Then we stop talking about. Sl- it, I mean, like. <laughs> It's hard to keep coming in second and saying he gives a victory speech every time he comes in second or third. Yeah. I mean, like, does he really need a? the name of the game is delegates and you have to win a majority of those delegates. And it's hard to do that without winning. (laughs) I mean, and so if we see Donald Trump perform very well in Massachusetts, I think it spells trouble for where Marco Rubio can really find a niche. So we mentioned Beyonce country, Texas, a bit earlier. Let's talk about it some more. <laughs> I thought it was Sam are... Sanders country. Hey, 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 hey. I like the way you think, sir. There's a lot of people in Texas. One of them called Sam Sanders. <laughs> Who wants to talk about Texas right now? Domenico, what's going on there? So Texas is the big prize of the night on both sides. On the Democratic side, you have a whopping 222 delegates. And on the Republican side, 155. It is the treasure trove. For Democrats, Hillary Clinton is heavily favored here. She has a lot of contacts in the Latino community. Uh, she's been there. They know her. She beat Barack Obama there in 2008. She pulled out all the stops. I mean, I remember her coming on stage holding hands with a little boy in a mariachi outfit. You know, that is the kind of stuff we are going to see in Texas. And Texas, if I recall correctly, was kind of a crazy process. There was a Texas two-step. and there's the two-step with the primary and the caucus. You don't need to know (laughs) all of that information, okay? Like, there's a primary, there's a caucus, they combine them. It's complicated. Like, it's the one place that does a combo thing. Basically, Texas be cray. Well, but the thing is, it costs a lot of money. 
to have to put a huge operation in, mm -hmm. uh, but it is proportional. So Bernie Sanders can get a good chunk of delegates out of there. He can't completely ignore it. And he also did well with Latinos in uh, Nevada. It was that's debatable. No, no, but we can, right? no, but it's but, but it's better than less. Right. I mean, he Hillary Clinton did not dominate. Yeah, it was okay. not. It was not the quote firewall that she would have wanted. Who it to officially be. won that group? Well, that's it's not debatable. Clear. That's oh, okay. debatable. And okay. I would say the but Hillary Clinton won this group in 2008. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what's important is she's not yet proven that she right. can win. So has Bernie Sanders broken through or not? So one thing that I think is kind of interesting in Texas is that we'll get a second glance at how Bernie Sanders can perform. I mean, we'll get we'll see that a bit in Georgia and in Virginia as well as how Bernie Sanders performs with Latinos. You know, you're right. The Nevada caucuses, really small group of people. We didn't get a clear sense of how he did with this group. But I think what we did get a clear sense of is Bernie Sanders consistently performs well with young voters. And in the country as a whole, as in many of these states with high Latino populations, uh, Hispanic voters are, are young people. And so, you know, if Hillary Clinton can't start performing really well with young people, I think that could pose problems down the road. I think uh, there's no question this is kind of the biggest prize on both sides. But I think what's going to happen on the Republican side in Texas is way more interesting. This has been a really good couple of weeks for Donald Trump, picking up wins three states in a row. And really, honestly, a, a bad couple of weeks for Ted Cruz's campaign. He's, he's found himself getting attacked by all his remaining opponents. There's been a lot of question about uh, dirty tricks and mm -hmm. whether or not the, the Cruz campaign has been upfront in, in the way that it's advertised or talked to voters or talked about other candidates. And there's been kind of a sense that, that Ted Cruz has been losing a lot of that momentum that he picked up by winning in Iowa. So the big question is, how does Ted Cruz do in his home state? If Donald Trump beats Ted Cruz in Texas, I think that raises a lot of questions about the main argument that Ted Cruz has been making lately, which is that I'm the only candidate who can beat Donald Trump. So if Ted Cruz does not win Texas, what happens? It's almost impossible to see him becoming the Republican nominee. Because I was being more polite than Dominica. All right. <laughs> All right. By 830, we have Arkansas. This is Clinton country. What about the GOP there? Well, I mean, demographically speaking, I can say that, you know, when we looked at our perfect state, shout out there, we mapped everybody <laughs> by education. And Arkansas is one of the least educated states in the country. Now, I think that this probably bodes well for Donald Trump, given that, yes, he performs well across all groups, but he consistently performs really, really well among non so that was, voters. And that was the narrative early on, that Donald Trump did better with people who had a high school degree or less. He's done well uh, with, with a broad swath of voters. Ted Cruz is hoping that he can pick something off and maybe someplace like Arkansas, which neighbors Texas, is a place that he hopes he can do well. And the last couple times, Arkansas has been pretty clear about who it's back. Both Mitt Romney and Mike Huckabee won with more than 60 percent of the vote the last two Republican primaries there. Yeah. And, the, and just to clarify, there's no question as far as Dems in this state, it's Clinton's state. I'm pretty, pretty sure much. Bernie Sanders will win. <laughs> we could stop it. <laughs> stop playing. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm this, already confused about everything this today, man. is the state that Bill Clinton was governor. Uh, you know, Hillary, Hillary Clinton was the first lady. lady. Uh, she's very well known. If Bernie Sanders were to pull off an upset there, I mean, that could be a game changer. Okay. A town called Hope. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's fast. Um, 9 p.m. We're getting results from Minnesota and Colorado. What's up there? 
Minnesota is another state where Bernie Sanders' campaign feels like he can do well. It's a caucus state. It's a traditionally pretty liberal state, at least among you know Democratic voters there. And uh, the Twin Cities are, are some of the sites where Bernie Sanders has had these enormous, you know, stadium-filling rallies. So that's a state where the Sanders campaign feels like it can be competitive. It's also more than 80 percent white. And I mean, let's be sort of honest, thus far in, in states, say, like New Hampshire and, and Iowa, the younger, Bernie the younger the, and the whiter the electorate, Bernie Sanders has, has done better. Well. When yeah. Hillary Clinton has had older and less white populations, she's done better. Okay. And so for the GOP, it's just Minnesota right now? That's right, because Colorado actually is not holding a presidential preference poll. They are going to start their caucusing that night. Oh my gosh. Why are they not doing a preference poll. They didn't want to bind their delegates for every state that went before March 15th. They would have had to have bound their delegates. So they did not choose to do a primary preference poll. If they did the preference poll, they would be bound. So when do they pick their actual nominee? Months from now. But in Minnesota, let's watch the home of Jesse the Body Ventura, the former wrestler. Um, Where is he now? Sidebar. Is he in Mexico? I have no idea. I thought he was in Mexico for a bit. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, Minnesota is a state where I guess, you know, Domenico, you were mentioning this earlier. It's it's a state where Rubio looks like he could potentially be up according to one poll. Um, I mean, this would bode well for him if he is able to pull off he needs a to win, win somewhere in his state <laughs> on Super Tuesday. Um, but again, I mean, I still think everything is so murky in, in my mind because of how much momentum Donald Trump has been building. And if he makes a clean sweep of all these states, I just think the headlines the next day will make it very hard for a second or third place finisher to claim a victory speech. Yeah, let's see if Rubio can pull one off. Okay, so what is left after 9 p.m.? There are a few other places that, you know, we're not going to see results until early in the morning. If then, Alaska, American Samoa, which is a territorial caucus, right? It's not even a state. Barack Obama in 2008 joked that he'd visited all 57 states <laughs> because, because there are 57 contests that include places like Guam and American Samoa and Puerto the Northern Rico. Mariana Islands. Wait, no, Northern, where even is that? Um, in the, I think in the South Pacific. Okay. Anyway, uh, all of these places vote. Democrats abroad is another one that starts Tuesday night. Democrats abroad are expatriates who might live in a, you know, you live in another country. In if any you're country? In, well, actually, it's being held in 121 sites in oh 40 countries. You go to the embassy, isn't it? There are uh, actually some of them are held in hotels, uh, ballrooms. Uh, you know, they have. They have a guy who's in charge of the whole thing. This lives in D.C. and they have a guy who's abroad. It's it's a whole system. It's a whole process. So they start their caucusing uh, on Tuesday night. You won't see results for some time. Uh, Wyoming Republicans, similar situation to Colorado, where they begin their caucusing process. They do not have a presidential preference vote uh, because they didn't want to have to bind their delegates. I have a question for the group. There's a very small window between Iowa and New Hampshire and all these states on Super Tuesday. It's really hard to be in all of those states and campaign heavily in all of those states. And, of course, you can't be in all those states on the day of Super Tuesday. What goes into the strategy here and like, as far as where you campaign in this really small window for this really big swath of country? This is why Super Tuesday usually favors a frontrunner and why it favors somebody with a lot of name ID and with a lot of money. Because it takes a lot of those things to be able to win across a lot of places, to buy TV ads, to uh, you know have your name out there. People know who you are. You don't have to do as much on the ground uh, campaigns. That's why there's this tension in uh, politics between grassroots 
grassroots and top down. A lot of people will say that they want to change the system, right? And let's have a national primary on one day. If you did that, Rudy Giuliani might be the Republican nominee. Because who is that? <laughs> former mayor of New York. I know. I'm who was leading you. in all the I polls that. before he Iowa, New Hampshire. He had the Florida strategy, right? He had the Florida, Florida, Florida strategy. And by the time Florida came around, it was over because he didn't have that grassroots campaigning. But Asma, you could probably talk more about having been on the ground and Scott too on like what you've seen when these candidates have gone. Does it really change? One thing I will say about Donald Trump is he has actually been in a number of these Super Tuesday states. I mean, he's early on been campaigning state in Massachusetts. He would fly in, do a rally there, and then go up to New Hampshire. He goes big. He he goes big. You got to go huge. Huge rallies. But he's been doing this in a number of these Super Tuesday states. So that was that was Donald Trump's strategy. Yeah. To go everywhere and go big. Um, On the Democratic side, I feel like. I, I actually do think grassroots still really does matter. Okay. So the day so? after, okay, so the day after the Nevada caucuses, mm-hmm. we had Hillary Clinton, or that night actually, she flew down to Texas, Super Tuesday. I remember State. that. Where did she send her husband in Chelsea? Colorado, on the ground, grassroots. And campaign. the thinking is those local stops get you local coverage, right? Yeah, they, and they we have do, seen yeah. some, um, you know, the one thing when you talk to political scientists about what works best, what's most effective. The problem is that uh, when you go do a local stop, you do get a bump in the polls because of the local media coverage of okay. you being there. So there is a lot of value in doing that local stop. The problem is that has a really short shelf life. And so you if, should, if you get a boost in those polls from being there, it goes away pretty so quickly. So you should backload those stops <laughs> right. until yeah. right before? I think you might get more value in these kind of big level, big arena pack stops in the Super Tuesday states and later states than you do earlier on because this is... There's so much this, focus early There's on. focus and the community and the voters who come out and more importantly, the local reporters who come to see you have not heard this speech 50 times like you were when you were in New Hampshire and Iowa there day after day after day. So I think you get you can get broader coverage. You can get some of the more messages that your campaign wants to focus on is what ends up you know being put in front of voters in the newspaper and TV in a way that might not be the case in early and, states. And this is a product of your earlier point, Sam, about how, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire seem to get a disproportionate amount of attention. Well, when you get that kind of attention, you can do, you know, eight months yeah. of stops at diners and, exactly. uh, you know, coffee shops and whatever. You can't do that when it's, uh, you know, a week or two. Mm-hmm. But you bring up a good point, too, about the sort of earned media attention, perhaps, that a candidate gets. And that allows, I mean, it's somewhat circular. And, and I have thought that a lot about this campaign so far, you know, that it is somewhat cyclical, that a candidate may make a remark that gets a lot of pressure attention and never has to pay for television advertisements. And to what degree does that then propel the candidate, you know, along more and more and more? And I don't know, in this day and age, and like when you can run a campaign by having massive rallies and an Instagram account and, you know, tweets, to what degree do you really need to show up in a diner? Okay. Promise this is the last question. Last question. What are the possible scenarios we find ourselves in after Super Tuesday? Let's start with the GOP. So number one, Donald Trump clears the table, decisive wins in every state. And I think it's a very difficult path forward for specifically Ted Cruz, if he beats Ted Cruz in his home state of Texas, but also Marco Rubio. Well, yeah. And I think number two that. could be the uh, the scenario that I think so much of, of the establishment has been yearning for, that we have a two-person Republican race. I mean, I think that's Which the scenario where Ted Cruz loses in Texas. I think we all right. think that Marco Rubio keeps fighting through Florida at minimum. Right? At we, minimum. We don't March 15th is Florida. And in the same way that 
that Ted Cruz has to win in Texas. Marco Rubio on March 15th has to win in Florida. And if it's a two-man race coming out of Super Tuesday, he's going to feel like he's got the momentum to win in a place like Florida and then win in places wait, after so that. So we're saying there's a possible scenario where Rubio does well Super Tuesday but does not win any contests. But that still forces Cruz, who has won a contest before, to drop out? Well enough. But, you know, when the expectations are that you're going to win in your home state and you don't win in your home state, then it damages him. Right. The Cruz campaign has banked on this big bank of southern states saying that this is the day that they're going to do really well. Have a larger, more conservative religious space, you're saying. Right. Where he would. OK. Right. And so that's maybe is, the scenario three, because which is what? What Ted is scenario Cruz three? Picks off Donald Trump in, in a Texas. lot of not just Texas, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. Georgia, maybe racks up some wins that weren't expected. But Trump doesn't drop out. Well, probably not, because he still would have a ton of places. But that but would Cruz mean, is in for is front runner then. Well, I no, I don't think so. I think oh. at that point, people would start saying Marco Rubio is the front runner. Wait, if, <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> because if Marco, no, because this is exactly what Rubio would want for Donald Trump and Ted Cruz oh, to split splitting the, the same kinds of people. Okay, I think most people expected. I certainly expected this exact scenario to play out two and a half months ago, where Ted Cruz and Donald Trump would be splitting the votes, and I thought Ted Cruz would be the best thing that ever happened to Marco Rubio because they would be splitting the Mm -hmm. most conservative, the Tea Party. That would be the Trump cruise lane. And then Rubio would have the establishment all to himself. Hasn't exactly worked out that way. A lot of people have been wrong about this. I mean, is that partly because voters, I mean, I met voters in New Hampshire who were torn between Cruz and Rubio. So is the idea that you know, Trump and Cruz are battling it out for this lane over here and Rubio's the establishment. We also met voters who were like, uh, you know, undecided between Hillary Clinton and and Donald Trump. So it's kind of hard. I mean, I guess there were a number. Yeah, go ahead. I I have um, I'm going to warn you first and we can decide if you want to hear this an extended Harry Potter reference to Marco Rubio, which was (laughs) a thing this week and it works. All right. So I didn't read the books. So Marco Rubio's strategy at the moment, a super PAC that's affiliated with Marco Rubio. Play some Harry Potter music. Under earlier this, this week, compared Marco Rubio to Harry Potter. Cue Harry explain, Potter theme music. Explain. Their comparison. So so here's Mike. So their comparison to Harry Potter was like really out there and made no sense. Harry Potter. A super PAC, a Rubio super PAC, said that he is like Harry Potter and Donald Trump is Voldemort, and he's slowly as more candidates drop out of the race. Wasn't Harry Potter like twelve? Okay, good. All right, so so, so I think that Super PAC parallel made no sense, but I think if you think about this like Quidditch, Quidditch. Marco Rubio's strategy makes sense because in Quidditch, there are lots of small amount of points that go back and forth, but there's one person, the seeker. Quidditch. What? Great question. Get out of here. Quidditch is a game played on broomsticks in the Harry Potter world where you, like, ride your broomsticks back and forth and, like, knock balls into circles. Sounds like a selection. (laughs) But the big amount of points in Quidditch is at the end when the Seeker grabs the golden snitch. Harry Potter was the Seeker. And he's kind of just hanging out, circling the Quidditch field. Okay. Waiting for the golden snitch to appear, which is the big delegates later on in the cycle. Uh, I got it now. So Donald it. Trump and you. Ted Cruz are hitting the bludgers back and forth, making not many points. Bludgeoning yeah. Ra- Marco other. Rubio is hanging out, circling around, uh-huh. and zooming in to try and get all the big points, which go. is okay. the, the winner-take-all states. Right. I like it. No, nope. yeah? I'm yeah? a convert. Sam is still okay. skeptical, but that's I, okay. I, I could understand I that. Yeah. Now, what is the Harry Potter situation for the Democrats? We haven't talked about the scenarios for them. What are the scenarios that come out of Super Tuesday, possible scenarios? Scott? 
I have no Harry Potter analogies. Um, well, okay. So the scenarios on the Democratic side, okay, so like the most one, obvious yeah. one is like our Trump one. On the other side, you have a Hillary Clinton broad sweep, and that puts Bernie Sanders back against the wall. Everyone's going to start the percentage countdowns of how many states and how much percentage of delegates he's going to have to win. And it seems like a slow bleed. Hillary Clinton started her path to the nomination on Super Tuesday. That's scenario one. What's the second scenario? I guess the second scenario is that Bernie Sanders not only wins some of the states that he's expected to win, say Minnesota, Vermont, Massachusetts, but that he does well enough in some of these other key important states that have large minority populations. So think Georgia or Virginia. And if he's able to do that, and particularly if he's able to even, say, win the Latino vote, in, say, Georgia right. or Virginia. I think that that sends a message, um, particularly, you know, say he does very, very well still with the young population in all of these states. Sure, young voters don't turn up to vote in the same numbers, but I think it raises problems for Hillary Clinton and continues Bernie Sanders' momentum. He wins where he needs to win, cuts into her margins in other places, does better among non-whites than others thought that he could, changes the narrative about his campaign, and then is able to, you know, hopefully Go with her long. He still playing won't Quidditch. have the delegates. I think that that. <laughs> <laughs> Looking yes. for the golden sword Quidditch overtime, y'all. What was it? Snitch, I believe. S- the golden. We might have to fact check this. Snitch. It's been a while. Okay. okay. Um, we're there. I, this is the way I felt after taking like the AP exam in high school. Just Please clap. Brain gone. <laughs> Please clap. I'm excited. Oh, please clap. Okay. All right. Are we going another hour? No, nobody. Nobody. Uh, Okay. (laughs) That's it for this episode. Elections.npr.org is where you can hear us with live special coverage of Super Tuesday, beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Find us on Twitter. Email us. Tell us if you like the show. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. And as always, catch our coverage on your local public radio station. We'll see you later this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm political editor, Domenico Montanaro. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover tech and the campaign. And I'm Asma Khalid, campaign reporter. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.